go ahead and open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Preaching through the book of Zechariah, it is considered one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament to understand. And I suppose that that's true, but when you compare Scripture with Scripture, some of those things are opened up. The foundation of everything that we do here at Grace Baptist is the Word of God because we believe in truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Then in John 17, 17, the Bible says, sanctify them, Jesus, sanctify them through thy truth. He's praying for us. Then he said, thy word is truth. We have a culture that says there's no such thing as truth. Isn't that right? And so if someone ever says to you, there's no such thing as truth, what are you supposed to say to them? Is that true? Because if it's true that there's no such thing as truth, then the statement there's no such thing as truth can't be true. And so we know that truth does exist. Even even someone like Stephen Hawking, who definitely believes in God now, right? Before he died, he, you know, he was a big proponent of the Big Bang. Of course, we do believe in the Big Bang. We just believe it comes at the end, not the beginning. But even if you do believe in the Big Bang theory that it happened, and as a matter of fact, when I met Laura in college, she had the believed in the Big Bang Theory. She had the, the Big Bangs. doesn't get any better. It's just terrible joke after terrible joke. Even those who believe, it's such an interesting thing that those who believe in a Big Bang, that even their philosophy proves God exists. Because logic would tell us that matter can't be eternal. It had to have a beginning. Logic tells us that time can't be eternal. It had to have a beginning. If there were an infinite number of moments in the past, then this moment never would have arrived. And so if matter can't be eternal, then matter had to begin. That means that whatever began that matter can't be matter because matter can't create itself, right? So whatever began all of this had to be timeless, immaterial, supremely powerful, volitional, that is to have a will to do it, and moral because moral law came into the universe with its founding. So when we think of a creature that is, that is timeless, immaterial, powerful, volitional, and moral, who is that? That is God. So even those who are trying to prove the existence of the world apart from God, all they can do is point to the Creator that exists. Well then, if God was going to write a book, if He was going to communicate to us, and He was going to write a book, what kind of book would He write? How would we know which of the religious books is is actually the Word of God? Because there are a lot of religious books, whether it's the Book of Mormon or New World Translation of Holy Scriptures with... The, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the different uh, Islamic books, the Quran, or the different Hindu books and Buddhist writings. How do we know which literature is actually from God? Well, the Bible in Isaiah 46, 9 describes the kind of book that God would write. He said, I'm God, there's none else, declaring the end from the beginning. So that is that God writes history before it happens. We call that prophecy. If God writes something in a prophetic way, you can write, mark it down as history because if God says it's going to happen, it will. 
And so we know that there were more than 200 specific prophecies from the Old Testament about, the who, who, about who the Messiah would be and that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those prophecies in himself. And so if God was going to write a book, what kind of book would it be? It would be a supernatural book, and we would know that it was supernatural because, again, God is timeless. He is outside of time, even though He created time and put us in time. His writing is outside of time. So He is able to say, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And we look back at history, and we say, it happened. He did that. So all of those fulfilled prophecies are the promise that He is going to fulfill. Prophecies to come. The amazing thing about the Bible is if you'll, if you'll take your Bible, keep your place in Zechariah, but just do this and take about a third of it and open it up like that. That's how much of your Bible is prophecy. For every one prophecy about His first coming, there are 11 prophecies about His second coming. And so your Bible is a book of prophecy. It is a supernatural book. And one of the problems that we have is we have commentators who don't really believe the Bible, and so they miss all of the supernatural power that's in it. I'm so thankful that God has revealed Himself in it. We understand the Bible according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, "...which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual." We understand the Bible. We understand what God wants us to have by comparing spiritual things was spiritual. Then John 6.63, Jesus said, The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So we understand the Bible by comparing the words of Scripture. So now go to Zechariah chapter 3. We're trying to get a good understanding of this book. There are eight different visions that are given. Remember that there has been the Babylonian captivity where God judged Israel because they didn't keep His feast years. They didn't keep those sabbatical years. So they didn't do that for 490 years. That means they owed God 70. So He carried them off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Now, and under the, the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, they've gone back into the land, but they've stopped building the walls. They hadn't built the temple. Haggai goes back and starts telling them to finish. And then six months later, Zechariah goes back and he encourages them to continue. And God speaks to us through eight different visions in this book. We've gone through the first two chapters. Here in chapter 3, I want you to see this. We're going to read the whole chapter. Let's look at it. Ready? Uh, Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now, that's a freaky situation. Sometimes we just read through the Bible. Look at what's happening here. Verse 1 again, And he showed me Joshua the high priest. Now, this is not Joshua as in Joshua and Caleb. This is, a, a, this is hundreds of years later. This is a high priest named Joshua. And he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. Remember, the angel of the Lord is always Jesus. And Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is, that, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. 
And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, do you see the way that that's capitalized? That's Jesus. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Dear Heavenly Father, help us now to begin to have a, an understanding of this chapter. Lord, obviously, we'll not get through all of it today, but Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see what's going on in this text. And Lord, I pray that, that we're helped by it and that you're glorified by the studying of your word. Help us now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want you to see here is that we've entered into a courtroom. We've entered into a courtroom, and we have three characters that we're going to talk about today. The first I want you to see is the accused. Look at the accused. And what we'll see is Joshua in verse 1, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest. Joshua is the accused. Now, we've already seen that God's not done with Israel. You have an entire section of Christianity that believes that the church replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. And keep your place here in Zechariah. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Let's look at what Jesus Christ thinks about that concept of replacement theology. Replacement theology is the teaching that because the Jews crucified Jesus Christ and rejected Him, that God is done with Israel, and now all of the promises that God made to Israel apply to the church. That's the teaching of replacement theology. Let's see what Jesus thinks about that. Verse 8, Revelation chapter 2, and verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, so this is Jesus speaking to the church at Smyrna, to that angel, These things saith the first and the last, which is dead and is alive. Jesus is the first and the last. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then, which was dead and is alive. He rose from the dead for us. He said, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the, what's that next word? Blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That's Jesus Christ's commentary on those who teach that the church replaced Israel. Jesus calls it blasphemy. So how many of you think maybe we shouldn't believe that? We should believe Jesus. We should not believe in replacement theology. Okay? So go back to Zechariah. So Zechariah chapters 1 and 2, remember the temple hasn't been built and there's no place to worship God. And so Zechariah is challenging them to finish that work, to finish it. But what God has promised is that He's not done with Israel. There's an immediate fulfillment 
that God is going to help them to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. You'll have Zerubbabel's temple that it's built. It's not the same glory as Solomon's temple. And they weep over that, but it is still a place for the people to meet with God and worship Him. That's going to happen. That's the immediate fulfillment. So Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, will be rebuilt. We looked at the end of, we looked at Zechariah chapter 2 over the last few weeks. And in Zechariah chapter 2, we have a different Jerusalem. It's the millennial Jerusalem. If you look at Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 4, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, that's Zechariah is the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, as towns without walls. That millennial Jerusalem, that thousand-year reign when Jesus returns and he establishes this millennial Jerusalem, there won't be any walls. And it will be larger than the Jerusalem that we see now. That's the millennial Jerusalem. So what God has promised Israel is that he is going to rebuild earthly Jerusalem and the Jews will go back into it. But there's going to come a tribulation period where the nations of the earth come against that and destroy it. Then Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, judges the nations, and establishes a thousand-year reign where he sits on the throne and rules and reigns with the rod of iron in the new millennial Jerusalem. So God has promised not only to restore Jerusalem, but to enlarge Jerusalem when Jesus Christ returns as their Messiah. Here in this text, you have Joshua, the high priest, representing all of Israel. And that's what the high priest does. So look at what it says in verse 1. And we're looking at the accused. This is Joshua. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, if, you've not, if you're not familiar with this concept, if you look through the Bible, every time it talks about the angel of the Lord, it's talking about Jesus. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, what do, I mean, what do I mean by pre-incarnate? The incarnation was when Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He came into the world in the form of a man, that incarnation. That is, in flesh, Jesus Christ came. This angel of the Lord is the appearance of Jesus Christ in the world before his incarnation. The other thing that I want you to see here, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see the priest standing before God, that's a representative. He's, he's representing the nation. Remember what would happen with the high priest. God established this with the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem. That the high priest was one man who was chosen by God to speak for all of the people. Once a year, he would enter into the holy place. He would cleanse himself. He would then go into the holiest of all with the blood of a spotless lamb. And he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat as a sacrifice to God for the sins of the whole nation. So what he would do is he would perform these religious rites for the whole nation. So we see Joshua as a representative of the nation of Israel, standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 again, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So the accused, he stands before God, but notice his condition. Notice his condition. He has no sacrifice. He has no golden ephod or royal garments. And if you've read the first five books of the Old Testament. You know that he had this, this breastplate, his ephod that was, that was of gold and priestly garments and the, all of the regalia that went along with that worship. He doesn't have any of that here. 
What is this showing us? Remember what's going on. These people have no way to worship God in the way that they should because the way that God determined they would worship Him is through the temple. But there is no temple. So there's no way for this priest to do what he needs to do for God's people. Why? Because they've not done what they're supposed to do. They stopped building the temple. It wasn't there. Now, the reason that that's so important, and I don't have time to go into it all today, but remember that the tabernacle prefigured the temple, and the temple and the tabernacle both prefigured Jesus Christ. All of those feasts, whether the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of those, Jesus Christ fulfilled the first four, Passover, Jesus is our Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus died as our sacrifice on the Feast of Passover. He was buried in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then He rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. The Bible says He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Fifty days later, He fulfilled the Feast of Pentecost when He sent the Holy Spirit. He said, It's expedient for, I, that for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Holy Spirit will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send Him unto you. And he'll, Then all the things that He'll do, He'll convince you of sin, He'll guide you into all truth, He'll show you things to come. All of those things that the Holy Spirit would do, the Holy Spirit would not do that unless Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when did He do that? At Pentecost. Jesus, right before Pentecost, ascended into heaven, and then He sent the Holy Spirit. So the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled those first four feasts is the promise that He will fulfill the next three feasts. The next feast is that, that feast of trumpets, and that's when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish His kingdom. And then there's the Day of Atonement. That's the day of the national salvation of Israel. Notice what it says in Zechariah chapter 3. At the end, at verse 9, at the end, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. That's the Day of Atonement. That's when Jesus Christ fulfills that feast. Then the Feast of Tabernacle takes, Tabernacles takes place, and Jesus Christ rules and reigns and dwells with His people for a thousand years in the kingdom. All, everything about this whole Levitical, sacrificial, and feast system, it all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That temple, everything about that temple, the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was covered in goat skins. It was ugly on the outside. On the inside, it was solid gold, pure gold. On the outside, it was ugly. There's no the Bible says that when you see Him, there's no beauty or comeliness that you should desire Him. That's Jesus. He's despised and rejected of men. Just, just someone on the outside. Um, the, the Bible says that, uh, that He, when He came, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant. He didn't come as a king. He came as a servant. So that tabernacle, it points to Jesus Christ. The, the way that it was situated, the, there was only one entrance into it. There was only one door. And of course, Jesus said, I am the door. And that door was pointed to the east. And outside of that gate, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel camped around it. The tribe that was right outside the gate was the tribe of Judah. And the only way you can come to the Father is through the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You go through that one door and there's no exit. Once you're in, you can't get out. Isn't that awesome? And that, that on the outside, you have the, the, the 
brazen altar, and that's the sacrifice, and Jesus Christ was our sacrifice. You had the brazen laver, and that's where the ceremonial cleansing would be. And all the implements of the temple had specific detailed measurements except the laver because Jesus Christ's cleansing is limitless. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus Christ's blood can wash it away. Remember in the temple, His blood covered their sin. In the New Testament, after Jesus Christ died, our sin is washed away. My sin's not covered. It's gone because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Every bit of it pointed to Jesus Christ. You go through the veil, and inside that veil, and of course Jesus Christ, when He died, that veil was rent in two, so that we now have access to the throne of God. But in that holiest of all was the, the... Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And that mercy seat was was shittim wood covered in gold, picturing that hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, where you have the amazing combination of Jesus Christ, 100% God, but also 100% man without sin. How can we understand that? We can't, but that mercy seat that represented Jesus Christ, inside that mercy seat was the broken law. There was a pot of manna. There's Aaron's rod that budded. But those broken tablets of the law that are in that Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat is over that. God Himself would hover over that mercy seat. And when God would look at the broken law, He'd see it through the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. And that's how God could keep from destroying those people. You see, that priest represented God before the people. Everything about that temple and that tabernacle and the sacrifice and the feasts, it all pointed to Jesus Christ. And who do we see here in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1? And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. But notice his condition. He's in filthy garments. He has no sacrifice. He has no blood. He has no priestly garments. He has no way to make the sacrifice for the people because they hadn't built the temple. That's the accused. Let's look at the accuser. This is an amazing thing, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand. And what is he doing? What does it say in those next three words? To resist him. What's the Bible say? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. This is the opposite side of it. Here you have Satan resisting the high priest and by his representation all of Israel. So how is this accuser represented in the Bible? Keep your place in Zechariah 3. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Are you all with me? All right. Revelation chapter 12. Now remember, Revelation chapters 12 through 17 is a parenthesis. So you have your seven seals that begin in Revelation chapter 6, and then you have your seven trumpet judgments, and then the seven vile judgments. In Revelation chapters 12 through 17, this is the history, God giving the history of His dealing with the nation of Israel from the birth of Christ through the end of the tribulation period. That's what's going on in Revelation chapters 12 through through 17. It's amazing information that God gives us. Now, people get confused because they try and apply that to the church. But remember, in Revelation, remember, Revelation's divided up. The Bible in Revelation 119 gives us the division. He says, write the things which thou hast seen. That's Revelation chapter 1. The things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall be hereafter. That's chapters 4 through 22. That's the way that Revelation is divided up. 
In chapter 4, you have God saying, come up hither. And John is caught up into heaven. And from that point on until the end of Revelation, the church is in heaven. It's not on earth. And God is judging the earth and judging the nation of Israel for that seven years of tribulation. Revelation chapters 12 through 17 is God giving the history of Israel from the birth of Christ, his dealings with them through the tribulation. People get it messed up by looking for something else. So Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And people try to have all kinds of different interpretations for that, and maybe we'll go through that sometime for you. But this is Israel. This is the nation of Israel. Revelation chapter 9, I think it's verses 4 and 5. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. It talks about how out of Israel came the Messiah. So this is Israel that's being spoken of. Now go to verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So can you imagine that scene in heaven when you have this warfare that goes on? Now we hear about spiritual warfare. This is actual warfare among spirits. And when Jesus returns, the Bible says he bathes his sword in heaven. So as he comes through the atmosphere coming back, he is destroying these enemies as he comes back. This is an amazing scene that takes place. Look at verse 8. And prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. This is for the dragon for Satan, and we'll see who that is in verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. And um, now I wonder if this is where Kanye got his dragon blood. I'm not, I, I, I doubt that's where he got that. Okay. So you guys didn't know I was that cool, did you? All right. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Now look at what the Bible says about him which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength. And what does it say here? The kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Don't miss that. Remember, the kingdom of God is in you. Remember, Jesus said, don't say low here, low there, because the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You can't see it. Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. All right? So the kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom that Jesus establishes in us. We're in him and he's in us. That's what happens at salvation. Now that's coming back to the earth, where Jesus Christ is not only going to establish the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven on earth. And notice what it says here. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Remember that word Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one. That's Jesus Christ coming back to earth to assume the glory and the kingdom that he should have had when he came the first time. Remember, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. So now look at what it says. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So how often... Now remember, God is dealing with the nation of Israel here. This is Satan accusing not only us, but the nation of Israel. How often does Satan accuse them before God? What does it say? 
So what's happening in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, where Satan is standing there accusing Joshua, accusing Israel, that's nothing unique. He does it constantly. He's the accuser. He's the accuser. Now, go with me to Psalm 109. I want you to see something. We're looking at what the Bible says about the accuser. Is it just me or is it way too warm in here? I don't know what's going on back there, guys. Um, I can always tell when it's too warm. Not only because I'm warm, but because people are sleeping. And it can't be because I'm pouring. All right, so. So Psalm 109, the reason that people have, if you get a commentary and you try to understand this being a messianic psalm, Psalm 109, a lot of people have a really hard time understanding this because they don't believe in the millennium, that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and they don't believe in the tribulation period. If you believe in those things, then you get a real understanding of Psalm 109. Look at verse 1. Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked... Now, who is the wicked? That's Satan. That's one of his titles, the wicked. For the mouth of the wicked and of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Man, is that just a perfect picture of what Jesus Christ did? So this is clearly a messianic psalm. Remember, there's more prophecy in Psalms, in the book of Psalms, than in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combined. There's all kinds of prophecy here. Now look at verse 6. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer becomes sin. Isn't that an interesting verse? And then this, of course, is, is my prayer for Nancy Pelosi. Let his days be few and let another take his office. So what's this, what's this speaking of? What is this talking about? So keep a place in Psalm 109. Keep your place here. Go to Acts 1. So this passage is quoted in the book of Acts, and we get an interpretation of it, of course, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, we're looking at the accuser. The accused is Joshua representing all of Israel. Acts chapter 1, the accuser. Look at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120, men and brethren, This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before, concerning who? Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of his iniquity, those 30 pieces of silver, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. So when he hung himself... He came apart. Nasty. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Eseldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written 
in the book of Psalms. Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So who is going to take it? Who is going to take his position? What was his position? Go back to Psalm 109. Someone is going to take this position. All right, so look again. Psalm 109, verse 6. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. Now remember what happened. He told, Jesus told Judas at the, the Last Supper, he said, whatsoever thou doest, do it quickly. He knew what he was going to do. And at that moment, Satan entered into Judas. Satan himself entered into Judas. All right, so now, look what the Bible says. In verse 7, Psalm 109, verse 7, When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. When will this person's prayer become sin? All right, keep your place, Psalm 109. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The accuser. All right, so keep. we can be done with Psalm 109 just because you don't have enough fingers. Keep Second Thessalonians and go to John 17. So we quoted verse 17 from this chapter a little while ago, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. But look at what Jesus said in verse 12. So John 17 and verse 12. This is who is being spoken of in Psalm 109. All right? So, John 17 and verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So, Judas is called the son of perdition. That's the title that he's given. But the Bible says, Let his days be few, and another take his office. Who is going to take Judas's office? Who is going to do that? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. So when Jesus Christ comes for us, it's in the clouds. We are taken up into the clouds with Him. When He returns to the earth, that's after that seven-year tribulation period. All of, us are, all of us who are saved are taken up into heaven with Him for seven years. All right? So he says, verse 2, "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us." So if somebody wrote a letter that says it's from us, don't believe it, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, except that day shall... I'm sorry. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, then look at what he's called, the son of perdition. So who is this? This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. Now notice what it said in Psalm 109. His prayer shall become sin. Remember it said that? The next verse explains that to us. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth 
in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the temple is rebuilt in the tribulation period. The worship of God in the temple is taking place. This Antichrist goes into the holiest of all and sits in that place as if he's God, and that prayer becomes sin. He is the man of sin, the son of perdition that comes to this world. And what does he do? What does he say? Look at Revelation chapter 17. Now remember, this is that parenthesis where God is dealing with the nation of Israel from chapter 12 until chapter 17 of Revelation. The accuser, what does he do? Revelation 17, 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into where? Perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And so what does this beast do? Remember what what the Bible is saying that he's going to do. He's going to speak against God. He's going to speak against God. He's going to accuse the brethren. Go to Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. We know who the dragon is. That's, that's Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. And the, the Satan gives power to Antichrist, just like Satan entered into Judas. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's the three and a half years of the tribulation, halfway through. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So we know that that's not us. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. The Bible says we are more than overcomers through him that loves us. This is not the church. This is Israel. All right? And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. So how is he the accuser? The first thing he does is he accuses men before God. He accuses us and he accuses Israel before God. But not only does he do that, he accuses God to man. What Satan wants you to do is not believe God and his word. Let's see how he does that. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Remember, the first thing Satan said was he challenged God's word, right? Do you see that? But he doesn't only do that. Look at what happens in verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So what he's doing is he's trying to tell Eve, listen, the only reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because he wants to keep you down. He's accusing God to man. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to not believe God's word. 
That's his goal. And he succeeded in that for Israel. Go to Romans chapter 10. So remember, Romans chapters 9 through 11 is the Apostle Paul telling the churches that God's not done with Israel. So Romans 9 through 11 is all about Israel. All right? So look at Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the church. What's it say? Israel. Remember whose mail you're reading. Remember the context. My prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Where do we learn all that? It's all from the Word of God. Remember, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we're born again. Go back to Zechariah chapter 3. So we have the accuser, and what the accuser does is the accuser accuses us before God and brings our sin to God, but he also accuses God to us. So here's what happens. When you're going through something hard, you get these ideas. Well, if God loved me, this wouldn't happen. I can tell you this, God loves you. He loves you so much that He sent His own Son to die on the cross for you. He loved you so much. He loved you so much that He's given you every good thing that's in your life. It comes from Him. That's how much He loves you. So we have the, if we go back to Zechariah chapter 3, we have the accused, that's Joshua representing Israel. We have the accuser, that's Satan. But here's the wonderful part. Look at the advocate, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. So our advocate is here. Who is the advocate? Look, keep your place in Zechariah. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Do we have any sinners here? Yeah. First John chapter 2, look at verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. All right, so here's what he's saying. Don't sin. Now, how many of you know that God is against sin? How many of you know you're not supposed to sin? All right, so he says don't sin. But when you do, do you see this? And if any man sin, we have an, what's the Bible say? advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the advocate, is standing for Israel. Right there. 
And now he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for me. He is our go-between. Remember, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is our advocate. That's who he is. He's my mediator. But go back to Zechariah chapter 3. I want you to see something really fun. I want you to see two persons of the Godhead here in this text. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. So Jesus Christ the Son is telling Satan that God the Father is rebuking him. You see that? So the two persons of the Godhead, that you have the angel of the Lord, and then you have the Lord of hosts. The angel of the Lord, and you have God the Father. Angel of the Lord, and God the Father. Now Lord of hosts is Jesus Christ coming in battle with us to fight. That's what that Lord of hosts means. But here you have Jesus Christ talking about God the Father rebuking Satan. All right? So, our advocate. He is my mediator. He is God. But notice that he rebukes the accuser. Now, please don't miss this. Only the Lord can rebuke Satan. Okay, keep your place here. Book of Jude, verse 9. You know, there are charismatic groups that go around binding Satan. Right? And they'll say, I rebuke you, Satan. I rebuke you, Satan. You know what Satan says? I don't care. How many of you are more powerful than an archangel? Remember, just a regular angel came and killed 180,000 people in one night by himself. That's not even an archangel. You can't mess. You can't fight those angels. You know what the good news is? You don't have to. Right? So, Jude, verse 9. And Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil... He disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. The Lord rebuked thee. So what is being said here in Zechariah 3? Go back there, Zechariah 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. So my advocate rebukes the accuser, and he's the only one who can do it. And then notice that he defends Israel in their filthy condition. I love what the Bible says about us in Romans, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for Joshua to get good. He steps in and he takes care of it. Our advocate defends them in their filthy condition, not because, of their, not because they're filthy, but because of his grace. See, salvation has always been of grace. Sometimes people think that salvation in the Old Testament was of works. No, it's always been based on the grace of God. Always. And so what does he do? He answers. Look at verse 2 again. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. He answered and spake. I want you to see something here that's real important. And I know we're going a little bit longer than normal, but I'm almost done. They have filthy garments. Do you know that, that no sinner can stand before a holy God? How many of you know that? Something has to be done about it. 
And what Israel has to do is they have to repent of their sin. Do you know that the prayer of repentance that Israel makes is recorded in the Scriptures? Keep your place in, in Zechariah 3. Go to, to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. Look at verse 1, Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Remember what happens. The mountains are brought low, Mount Zion is brought up, and it becomes the highest place on earth. All right? That's what happens when the Lord returns. Look at verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art wroth, he's angry, for we have sinned in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as what? And we all do fade as the leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. And they pray, and they ask him to save them. This is the prayer that they make. But what do they acknowledge? That all of their righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Is that right? Go back to Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with what? Filthy garments. That's the state of Israel before God. That's the state of the Jews before God. And they need a Savior. The only answer is the blood of Jesus Christ. And He will take it away. Verse 9, for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, don't we have a great God? He's going to take it away. But how is He going to take it away? Look at verse 4. And He answered and spake unto those that stood before Him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from Him. And unto Him He said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. You cannot save yourself. Israel cannot save themselves. It must be done by God. But how has God chosen to do it? By the Word of God. Notice he said this, do this, it's by his word. The Bible says that about us. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. God is going to do it with his word. And of course, that's why Satan attacks it. Then he says that he caused it. He gives them a change of raiment. And let's just finish it up with this. You know what God did? Remember in the Garden of Eden? when Adam and Eve had sinned and they realized that they were naked. Man, I wish some people today realized they were naked. Man, different sermon. But they realized that they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. And what did God do? He came and found them. And He changed their clothes. But in order to do that, there had to be a blood sacrifice. Jesus Christ came as our sacrifice. 
The Bible tells us now to take off the old man and put on the new man, which is in righteousness. How can we do that? Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we're going to put on the whole armor of God, our loins girt about with the truth. The Bible says to put on the helmet of salvation. We need to know what we believe about salvation. And then we put on the breastplate of righteousness because we don't have any. We've got to put it on, and that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The same thing happens here. What does God do? God takes Israel. He says, you're my people. I'm going to remove your sin. I'm going to cause your sin to go away. I'm going to cause that filth to be removed, and I am going to clothe you anew. That's our advocate. There's an old hymn that I love. It says, What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Though the restless foe accuses, sins recounting like a flood, every charge our God refuses, Christ has answered with His blood. You know, Israel stands before God accused. Justly and rightly accused. But the angel of the Lord, who is the judge, also became the advocate. And just as Jesus loves us, Jesus loves Israel. And He is going to save them in a day. Look at Zechariah chapter 3. Notice what it says. Verse 2, the end of the verse. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Amos chapter 4 verse 11 describes Israel as a brand plucked out of the fire. It's talking about Israel. Write that cross-reference down. Amos 4.11. Israel is the brand plucked out of the fire. Zechariah chapter 13. You all know the verse. Verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part. What's it say? Through the fire. They're a brand plucked out of the fire. And will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. God is going to save Israel. They can't save themselves. Only God can save them when they acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. They're going to look on Him, the Bible says in Zechariah 12, that on whom they've pierced, and they're going to mourn for Him as for their only son. They're going to see that that's who He is. But Jesus Christ is their only hope. And can I tell you something, folks? Jesus is our only hope. How many of you recognize anything about the gospel message in that text? We're going to look at some of that tonight. But this is an amazing passage of Scripture where we see the accused, it's Israel. We see the accuser, that's Satan. And we see the advocate, that's Jesus Christ. The accuser has accused them day and night throughout their entire history and will until Revelation chapter 12. He's going to return as the son of perdition and the Antichrist, and bring railing accusations. His sin, his prayer will turn to sin. Many people will follow him. Those that follow him, their names aren't written in the book of life. They can't be saved. You have to follow Jesus Christ to be saved. You can't follow Antichrist in the tribulation. All that is going to happen, and then Jesus is going to return, judge the nations, and establish his kingdom on this earth. Do you know that that's going to happen? Prophecy is God writing history before it happens. What a supernatural book God gave us. Amen? I hope that you're saved today. I hope that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I hope God has given you an appetite for the things of His Word. But no, we can't save ourselves. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that grace that the McCluskeys were singing about. It's that grace that we've read about today. Remember, they don't, Jesus Christ doesn't stand as their advocate because of their sin. Jesus Christ stands as their advocate because they need an advocate to remove their sin. 
and that's Jesus. Let's all stand together. Lord, thank you so much for your word.